If you listen to leadership podcasts, you might know Ryan Hawke from The Learning Leader Show. At college, Ryan battled head-to-head for the starting quarterback role with likely Hall of Famer Ben Roethlisberger. After college, he took the skills he'd learned on the football field and applied them to selling, rising to VP of sales at a multi-billion dollar company. Now, Ryan heads up Brixie and Meyer's leadership advisory practice. So on all fronts, he's someone who is at the coalface of leadership development. If you enjoy this conversation, make sure you head over to learningleader.com and order a copy of Ryan's book, Welcome to Management, which launches through McGraw-Hill on January 28, 2020. I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. Say g'day to Ryan Hawke. How are you, mate? I'm good, Cody. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Uh, I've been following along with what you've got going on for quite some time and, and a lot of overlap with uh, a lot of the things we like to talk about and look into. So really looking forward to jamming on some ideas with you. Me too. I think we, so we have so many uh, uncommon commonalities that uh as uh you originally reached out to 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 have this one i started digging into learning more about you i thought uh this is going to be this is going to be a good one so i'm looking forward to it i I appreciate this totally man let's let's start with your athletic career uh you know like i mentioned to you a lot of my following is is kind of you know, the UK and Ireland and Australia and New Zealand. And so we've kind of always grown up looking at this role of, of being a quarterback. You know, we see it in the movies and, and you were actually a quarterback, both at the college level and the pro level. And so I'm interested in, in kind of tying these ideas together, a quarterback and what it teaches you about leadership. Can you just educate me on that? Like reflecting back, what did it actually teach you? It's a massive responsibility to uh, play the role of the person that the other 10 guys are looking to uh, in the huddle uh, to, for, for vision, for direction, uh, communication. Uh, you, you learn so many skills through trying to develop and become an excellent quarterback, and then you have to perform um, against uh, – 11 other guys who are trying to, to, to sack you, to get you down. And there's so much that goes into the amount of preparation needed, the ability to persevere, uh, to be resilient, uh, to be there for your teammates, to pick somebody else up when perhaps they, they may have dropped the ball or they have missed an assignment. A quarterback can make up for, for mistakes that others make. And they're also and when you when you look at the the measurement of quarterbacks, they're measured upon how much they win, and that is because they 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 have the biggest impact on the outcome of the game. When you look at Tom Brady, people call him the greatest of all time because he's won six Super Bowls. Uh, people don't put Dan Marino in the same uh, air, same area code as Tom Brady because he hasn't won a Super Bowl yet. He was uh, incredibly talented 
uh, huge statistics, right? For all intents and purposes, was was one of the greatest ever. Yet he's not in that upper sphere because of the the winning, and so I I, I learned the immense responsibility, uh, the value of preparation the ability to persevere, uh, so many skills that have since gone on to help me in other areas of my life. I started learning those in the second grade when I started playing quarterback. I want to revisit something you said there, but I want to touch on this first. So you come out of your, your pro career, you play in the arena league, you go into sales. Was that by design? Like, was that your mental profile you know, or was it kind of that idea? Cause I, I talk about this a lot on the show is, you know, we tend to force ex athletes into sales cause they're, you know, goal driven and self-motivated and they just kind of get pushed into sales. So for you, was it by design? Like were you attracted to, to being in sales? No, I did not uh, actually think about life after sports. And I think that's because I was immature. Uh, I was young. Um, I thought I would have the opportunity to play professionally and earn a living and do that full time. Um, And so I had less foresight in my more immature days, uh, my early 20s than I have now. And I've I've learned that through life repetitions and experiences and, and, and growing up. So I... I took that first job um, because I needed a job. Um, I need I needed to make money. I needed to support myself. Uh, I needed to, to get on with my life. And I was just fortunate to be taken in by a fantastic mentor named Rex Caswell, who really showed me that I could use some of the skills that I develop on the athletic fields of my willingness to work and prep and, 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 and do extra, uh, do more. Uh, I, he, he, he showed me how that could translate into the world of professional selling. And so I used all of those key skills that were uh, created through sports and just channeled all of that energy into the world of professional selling. And fortunately, uh, for me, it, it, it worked out and uh, it went really well and, and, and certainly had incredible mentors and people to help me and good bosses. Um, and, and from there, then I, I really got into understanding the craft of what a professional uh, does and uh, how I could, uh, again, use some of the skills I developed to excel in that world. And, and from there, it led to, to leadership opportunities, which certainly have, played a, uh, have now become a, a big part of my life. Yeah. See, I went the other way. I, I couldn't reapply those same ideas from my, my sports career. And I'd already been in coaching for a number of years by the time I kind of really got into my professional why couldn't you why couldn't you apply them uh, well I could have but I, I yeah I had a, a bunch of the mental challenges um, for me potentially it was selling something that I didn't really believe in mm-hmm. and and so I yeah I, I didn't have that same ruthless edge that I would have had in my playing career um, funnily enough since leaving, you know, selling goods and services and doing what I'm doing now. So essentially selling myself and you know, mm-hmm. this story as well, you know, your, your brand and, and that's actually where I've been able to apply it, but I couldn't do it for someone else or for a product or service that I didn't believe in. And I didn't think was adding value to someone's life. 
Um, I'm, I agree. I think it's a really, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a key point where people could struggle. I, I certainly had to believe in what I was selling. And I think whenever I got to the point that I didn't believe in that, or I wasn't surrounded by the, the, the people that I felt I want to be surrounded by, then it was, it was time to eject. Um, but I'm, I'm with you. And, and I will tell you now that my, my professional life is selling essentially myself and what I believe in and, 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 the, and I guess the products that come from that, which is whether it's keynote speaking, one-on-one advising and books and, um, and all of that leadership circles that I run, it is certainly much, I'm not going to say easier, but, uh, more enjoyable to be selling something that you believe in with every ounce of your being. And for, and for me, that, that definitely makes, I think it makes for a more rewarding life. I would, I would imagine you feel the same. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's exactly how I would put it. It's just, it is so much more rewarding. What I was going to ask you just to kind of put a bow on, on this kind of part of your career. And then I want to jam on some ideas with you, but you know, as you progressed up and, and got those leadership opportunities in sales, how did your kind of experience or your knowledge of, you know, this is now not about me. Like as you progress up, it becomes about us, which again, going back to your athletic career, like, like you talked about, it's about winning. Ultimately, that's what we care about, not about the, the individual stats. So did that have any impact? Certainly. I think about, uh, I played on winning teams and I played on losing teams and I try to analyze the biggest difference between those two. And for me, one, there's a number of, of, of key aspects to that, but one of them is the fact that the winning teams I were on, the players did a fantastic job of holding each other accountable. Um, more so than even the coaches. I think the coach's job was to set the set the environment and the framework to empower the team to allow that to happen. And then the players felt this ownership with the winning and losing and the success or failure of the team. And then they in turn held each other accountable. So for me, when I got my first job as a manager uh, and I was making hiring decisions, one of the aspects or one of the qualities I wanted to look for was were, were people who would be willing to do that. And I go back and speak to sports teams all the times. And that's one of the, 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 the aspects of winning teams that I talk about. And I say, but there's a big but there. You can't hold other people accountable if you're not first looking in the mirror. You're not taking care of your own performance, your own behavior, your own habits, your own actions. That has to come first. You have to be living up to the lofty standards that you want to hold others up to. You have to believe in excellence and and, and push yourself to those standards in order to hold other people up, to hold other people accountable. So it always starts with looking inward, making sure you're taking care of yourself, having awareness, and then have the guts and the willingness to push your teammates and to hold them accountable to those lofty standards. Do you think that's still something that's really misunderstood in pro sports? I I look at how the discussion and the narrative develops around the coaches. And like you said, nowadays, yes, there's the X's and O's part, but it's essentially creating an environment and creating a framework around the guys for them to essentially self-manage to a certain degree. I'm not 100% sure since I'm not on the inside of these teams from afar, though when I, when I study or look at teams or coaches who have been able to sustain excellence over an extended period of time, I certainly think, and, I can, and you can see it, mm-hmm. players 
holding each other accountable. And the reason that they're able to do that is because the, the, the coaching staff, uh, the leadership has created an environment to empower them to do that. So I, I absolutely believe that can work in business. If you're a, a leader leading other leaders, perhaps who are, who are leading their teams, it's creating and fostering an environment give them the freedom and flexibility to hold one another accountable up to these big standards. But again, it still starts with you as the leader. If you're going to make that choice to hold people to high, to high standards, you have to live up to them and go beyond them yourself. And not everybody wants to do that. It's really hard. It's, it's, it's a daily practice. It's something we have to think about constantly and most people would rather do the easier thing, not the hard thing. And that's why the ones who are willing to do it, uh, they're the ones who are able to sustain excellence far more than, than the others. And it's just like you said, where, where others won't. And I think some are, aren't willing to do it and others are. And, and, and uh, you need to be willing to do it if you, if you care enough to, to sustain excellence. Yeah. You just see the patterns, don't you? When you just, you can sit back from, you know, the, the high level overview that, that you and I get, you do see those patterns and, and that's one in particular. And that's why I, I went with that name was you just see over and over again that they're willing to, to do things that others aren't. And, and across the board too, it's, you know, it's not just that money ball idea of like, Hey, we've just got this one tool that we're going to beat everyone with. It, it's never that it's kind of more, uh, an organizational philosophy that that goes across the board and they're willing to to push the boundaries uh, in a whole range of different areas let's jam on some ideas man i, I just want to uh talk about what you're seeing in in the marketplace as you talk and as you speak to these people on your podcast as you consult all these businesses so let's start with recruiting you mentioned it before and in, in you know how you would recruit for you, as you talk to businesses, like what are some of the challenges that we're still running up against in the business landscape in terms of how we're bringing people into our organization? I think first, when I would sit with leadership teams and let's say they're in a stage where they need to, to grow, they need to make some hiring decisions. I'm surprised and even some successful organizations have done a poor job of clearly defining what they value, what they want, and then take it a step further to figure out how to get that. So if you if you really want somebody who shows a track record of an incredible work ethic, of having a curiosity, of being courageous, uh, have built up confidence, right, of security in oneself to do the to do whatever role you're hiring for well. People aren't, they, they haven't clearly defined and they're not always aligned among a leadership team of what do we value, what do we want, and then taking it a step further, how do we ensure that we're recruiting properly, asking the right questions in the interview process to ensure that we're getting those types of candidates in our pipeline and then making those those hires. And then from there, it's creating the environment for them to thrive and to excel. It's not just hiring good people and letting them go. It's hiring great people and supporting to, to them to excel and maximize their strengths, setting up the environment for them to, to, to maximize what they're really good at. And I think uh, it just, I come back to it a lot, but the two things that I found that the, the leaders who are sustaining excellence do the most is that they are incredibly thoughtful. They have done a great job of taking time 
uh, a way to reflect, to think, and to get very clear on what they believe. And then on, on top of that, they take it a step further and they're in, incredibly intentional with their actions and their behaviors. They create habits, routines, rituals, systems, frameworks in place to ensure that they can be consistent and not most, I would say some, the ones that are struggling are the ones who don't take the time to be thoughtful and reflective. And then that leads to them not being intentional with their behavior. It leads to haphazardly making decisions and that leads to inconsistent hires and missing out on some of the great talent and making mistakes and hiring some uh, people who, who, who may be wrong for your organization. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I've started doing? I now go on to LinkedIn. I'll just, I'll pull up whatever the most recent jobs are. It doesn't matter. Uh, mostly, you know, the, the, the top sponsored company. So, you know, you're upper echelon and I'll go and read the job description and then I'll actually jump onto their corporate site and I'll look at their values because everyone has their, you know, start with why page mm-hmm. on, on their corporate site now. And then I marry the two up. Are your values, are the behaviors that you're espousing on your corporate site, are they showing up in your job description? Because if you're just going along with what you've always done from a, you know, describing what you're looking for, uh, like there's the first wrinkle for me. That's that thought that, that you're talking about. It, it needs to touch every single element of this process. And it can't just be this is our culture internally once you join us. You know, these behaviors need to show up as early as the job description. So if you say that you're transparent, but then you're essentially lying in your, in your job ad and saying, you know, we're, we're, we're growing when really you're replacing someone, that's, that's going to come back to bite you. And, and that's that kind of thought that I think you're, you're talking about. Like, you know, we, we really need to think about this whole process and not just go to the default thinking of what we've always done here and the job ads that we've always used. Yeah, I don't know if you studied um, one of the companies I, I love to study is called Basecamp. I've had one of the founders, DHH, uh, David Hennemeyer Hansen. I'm getting ready to record Jason Freed. You may have talked to those guys, but um, like you go to their their um, their page w- with um, uh, job descriptions, and they're, they're they ask like who 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 are you or who you are? Rock star question mark pass superhero question mark super yawn friendly and thoughtful. Let's talk. So it, they they immediately say from the from the very top we care about people who are friendly and thoughtful, right? If you consider yourself an eager learner, a conscientious worker, and a thoughtful, kind, supportive human, you might just have a home here. What we're not looking for are ideological clones or people who are otherwise just like us. In fact, we look we t- we took a look in the mirror recently. And I I just pulled this up now. We took a look in the mirror recently and weren't satisfied with how many similar faces we saw looking back. So. My point is, you know, just like you said, I think it's a great exercise. You know exactly what they're about. They put it out there. And I think more people should have less kind of corpo speak and more let's show some of our personality. Now, I know Basecamp's a little bit smaller, so some of the bigger camp companies might be saying, well, you don't understand, Ryan, you can't do that. I don't know. I think you can. I think we. I think bigger companies could learn a lot from some of the smaller companies to say, we don't have to be so generic. We can let some of our personality shine for what we're looking for and, and publish it for all to read. I, I, I'm inspired when I see uh, job descriptions like this one. So Jason did a, a, a an ask JF hashtag yesterday on uh, yeah. on Twitter, and I, I sent him a, a question. It was, 
how did you feel writing the director of marketing job description? It was awesome. Uh, yeah. Mate, the most incredible thing I've ever seen. I, you know, there's a chapter in my book that talks about vulnerable job descriptions. And I, I talk about how we need to get a little bit more vulnerable. Like we're asking it in all these different avenues of our lives. And, and it's one that businesses need to come to the table with. And, and the way that that was written um, was fantastic and, and says like, these are the things we've been doing poorly and, and we know it and we're not going to be able to pay you as much as you're probably worth, but you know, here's what we're offering and here's what, and, and they just came to the table with it. And I thought it was just absolutely fantastic. And, and like you said, uh, uh, companies of larger ilk, smaller ilk can, can learn a lot from that because I think once you show that vulnerability, like we see in other forms of life, once you show that, then the response from everyone matches that and people come to the table and, and applicants are like, well, yeah, I don't have this either, but I think I can help you with what you're looking for here. I agree. Like I said, this, this is, this inspires me to uh, the, w- the way I view the world and work. Um, and uh, I think they're, they're great examples examples uh, of, of that, that we all can learn from. And that's what I try to do kind of on a daily basis. When I think about my, my, my process is, is seeking out knowledge from wise people and understanding how that I could marry that with my personality and experiment and test it out uh, with what I'm trying to do on a regular basis. And then, and then certainly be reflective to see what works and, and to see, see what I should continue to do and what I should stop doing. And I think having that regular check-in with yourself on a daily basis can be uh, really helpful. Ryan, let's move on. So we've hired these people. Now we're looking at selection. We're going to move them up the chain into leadership roles. So let's talk about leadership. Uh, again, same question. Like, what are you seeing in terms of how businesses are either setting their leaders up for success or potentially not setting their leaders up for success? So I would talk about, I would, I think about the initial jump when you, uh, for example, make the leap from individual contributor to manager for the first time. So you go from someone who was only responsible for taking care of yourself to now responsible for taking care of a team. And I did, you know, I've written a lot about this um, upcoming book is focused on this. And I talk to leaders about this on my podcast, the Learn, Learning Leader Show all the time. I think there's a big gap in the market at this particular place. And it's vital that it gets fixed because you normally would get promoted. And this is what happened in my career, but I've done a, a lot of research on this. You normally would get promoted because you were successful in run, one role and then they, they just promote you to be the manager of that same job. In my world, it was professional selling. And all of a sudden now you're the sales manager. And I think we do a very underwhelming job in most companies, unfortunately, of preparing that person for success. I think a lot of learning is done through making uh, a number of mistakes. I know that's certainly a part of my process was making a, a year's worth of mistakes before I finally was even average at the job. And, I, and so I think we need to one, prepare those people before they get promoted with proper training of what it's like to be a leader of a team, to have people who actually report to you, to be the dinner table conversation of all of those people, because that's what you are when you're the boss, when you're a manager 
future. We need to pre- prepare people before they get the job of what it's really like. And then it needs to be ongoing as they get as they get into the role uh, of actually this is what it's like to be a manager. This is what we you need to be prepared for on a regular basis. I remember vividly the very first week, Cody, when I got promoted, I was 27 years old, and and uh, I look up for my new new you know newly. Uh, uh, designed office. I look up and there's somebody at my door and, and she's 43 years old. She now reports to me and, I, and she starts kind of slowly walking in my office and I notice that she's crying and she pauses and she's trying to get herself together and she says, Ryan, my husband cheated on me. He wants a divorce. And I stopped and said, what? What, <laughs> right. what, do, what do you why are you, you know, like in my head, why are you telling me this? And I, and, 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 and what you don't realize when you are, uh, an individual contributor is when you become the boss of, of a team or a boss of people, is there a whole other host of responsibilities that nobody really prepares you for? A lot of real life stuff happens and people feel the need to tell their boss, perhaps they need to leave work or they need, they need help, or they just want a, uh, uh, someone to lean on, or they need someone to vent to. As, the, as a manager, a new manager, you, you, you immediately play all of those roles. So there's so much weight and responsibility that you don't think about until you've actually now in the job. And so that's one of the areas that I'm really trying hard to help prepare people for so they don't make some of the same mistakes that I made. I think you're going to do a fantastic job at, at just discussing that topic. Um, and funnily enough, that was my experience as well. You know how I said I was a shitty sales guy. I actually went to one of my employees and said, you know, I might be third or fourth on the, the dashboard, but make me the manager. I'm an, I'm a leader. Mm-hmm. So I can lead these people, but I can't necessarily get to the top of the dashboard in sales. And, and, you know, obviously you know, this is an era where you needed the track record to become the manager. So that got shot down really quickly. But those are the kind of things that I, I look at is, yeah, how do we do a better job at identifying leaders that aren't necessarily the best individual contributor? They will probably show characteristics of leadership in that, as an example, they might give up sales so someone else can succeed. That's probably someone that you might want to look at for a leadership role rather than just a ruthless top salesperson. Uh, let me ask you this, Ryan. Do you think leadership could be its own career path or should be its own career path? Uh, well, so what it takes to be great at your job as an individual contributor typically is not the same as what it takes to be an excellent leader. Now, sometimes it works out the person at the top of the sales stack rankings is also a fantastic leader and it works out. However, the problem is typically from an interviewing perspective, what most people do is they just look at the top of the stack rankings and they take the top two, three, four or five people and say, you are going to be, you're, you're, you're going to get the opportunity to interview for this job versus saying, wait, let's, let's look at people who have shown the greatest willingness to help to serve, uh, that are curious learners, that are that that have, I would say, a high ceiling. That's that's one of the f- phrases I always use when we are having group interviews. When we would go and, and talk about the candidates, I'd say, who has the highest ceiling? Meaning, who has the highest potential to learn, to grow, to improve, and get better? Those those types of people earn respect. They also will be better in year two than they are in year one. I don't want a fully baked 
person. If anyone thinks they are, then they're wrong. I firmly believe you're, you've never arrived. You're always becoming like I was told by JJ Reddick on my show. And so I, 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 uh, I don't know to answer your question, can it be uh, certainly, I mean, leadership can be developed and you can improve. Um, However, there is something to earning some respect as saying, well, this person, he or she, I know they can do my job. Um, I will say as a, especially in the profession of selling, um, it is helpful if you can prove that you can actually do the job. Right. Uh, it's not mandatory. I mean, Bill Belichick is not a great football player. He wasn't a great football player. He's turned out to be a great coach, but it's taken him many, many years to earn that respect and a lot of winning as a coach to earn that respect. As a newer leader, a newer manager, it is tougher to earn respect if you haven't shown that you have some capacity to do the job that they're doing. It's not mandatory, but I do think it's helpful. Yeah, I've written an article about that. I I went and looked, I think it was probably about five years ago now, but at the time, you know, the the iconic figures in the big four sports were Belichick, Popovich, Babcock and Madden, and none of them had played professionally at any level. And and I think even Joe Madden hadn't got above class A. Um, And so, yeah, there's, that's kind of where my mind goes is like, can we design this a little bit differently? It doesn't need to be drastic, but can we design it so that people can potentially get into a leadership pipeline? It doesn't mean that they're a leader necessarily, but into a pipeline where some of those opportunities get fast track. Some of those learnings and those failings can be done earlier rather than like you talked about your experience was just magically being bestowed this office and then completely unprepared to deal with Sandra who walks in when her husband has cheated on her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think there might be something there. I haven't fully fleshed that idea out in my head, but uh, it's something that I'm, I'm just curious about. I, I hope so. I, I think that could be done. I mean, uh, uh, more and more companies do have some forms of leadership development programs um, and different acronyms they use for, for these types of things that they create. And I've, I've helped with, with some companies to be, to play a role in those meetings and, and training. So I certainly know that they're, they're becoming more and more popular. Um, I, I, I think that is one of the passes where you show someone who maybe they aren't the number one performing salesperson. However, um, they've shown uh, uh, the ability to learn and to grow. And, and, and when you analyze their willingness to help um, and be someone who seems to value uh, and understand the benefits of being someone to unleash the, the, I guess the genius of other people. I mean, that's, those are some of the skills that, that leaders and managers need to develop. Let's move on to, I want to talk about culture. Obviously again, you know, buzzword, lots of books on this, lots of ideas around this. My perspective on where this is going is there's, I still see too many copycat cultures developing where we're just kind of looking at Google and saying, well, they did the studies and and there's all these books and there's psychological safety and yada, yada, yada. But that's, that works for them. What are your thoughts on the the whole kind of just a a general commentary on on culture and and what you're seeing from the companies that you talk to? 
as far as how to build a great one or what do you, what do you mean culture wise? In terms of how they're trying to develop it, like are they having that introspective look at, at what works for them or are, you know, do you see a lot of kind of, Hey, Google's doing this, Facebook's doing this. Let's do that as well. Yeah. I, I think that, that the latter is sometimes could be an issue if it's not true and genuine to you, the leader who was setting the, 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 the culture for your organization, um, that could be a problem. You're like, well, Hey, I, you, you, I, I've seen leaders meet with, uh, perhaps HR people and say, well, I read that Google does this, let's try this. And, and, and then they have a town hall where there's all of a sudden beer shows up in the back because they saw <laughs> that a, a startup did that. And, and, and yet it's still super awkward and weird and people aren't even drinking it because they don't, the culture is not designed to, to be non-judgmental enough, you know, it's things like that. I've been a part of, I've seen that happen. I think it just has to be true and honest, and authentic to the leaders of the organization and for the people who are setting the setting the culture um, if it is fake if it's not legitimate if it's not real um, that's a problem if somebody is trying to um, create some sort of facade because they read a, an HBR article I, I don't think that, that has any chance of, of long-term success. But if you do have a leader who's genuinely curious about fostering and empowering people and creating a place where people can be unleashed to do their best work, then I think it has a great chance. So it really comes down to the authenticity of the leader of the leadership team to say, do we, do we genuinely care about our people? Do we genuinely care about this being a great place to do great work. Um, and if so, then we need to be intentional with our actions every day and not just, Oh, let's have a, a happy hour here or, or, or something here that I read, uh, but making it a part of the daily interactions you have with your people. And so what are some of the best cultures that you've seen that you've just walked in and it's smacked you in the face and you, you just get it straight away? Well, I mean, I currently work with business partners in a team that that has an incredible culture here. Uh, I left corporate America two years ago to bring the, the the learning leader brand and podcast and everything I do uh, with this service line that I do to the to the founders and, and owners at Brixie and Meyer, which is uh, started as an accounting firm 17 years ago and is is it still does accounting tax audit and advisory services and now has branched out and also does business advisory as well as what I do, which is leadership advising for, for leaders. The reason why I think the culture is, is so great is because one, the, the firm is incredibly picky uh, upfront, meaning the hiring process is, is, um, they like a lot in the industry may just take someone who seems competent enough to do the job as opposed to having all of the necessary values that are important to our firm of having an open mind of being curious of being a learner of being a hard worker of having a track record of success all of these things and that starts with the leaders of the firm Doug Meyer and Dave Brixey and those guys live those values on a daily basis you can tell they genuinely care about the people of the firm as it's grown from two people to now 70. And I think if, if they were not living their true values and we didn't see it every day, then, then, then the culture um, wouldn't be what it is. And so it's really about empowering our people to do incredible work. And that's set, that's set from them. So I'm, I'm fortunate to get to see this on a daily basis. You mentioned your show there. Let's talk about that a little bit. It's, it's something that 
for me personally, I, I've looked up to you and your show for, for quite some time and I've been following along closely, but maybe just go back to that origin. Like why, why did you start the, the show? Like what was the catalyst moment for you? So I'd finished up getting my MBA and I was um, going to go back and get a further, further degree, maybe a PhD in management or leadership. Um, and at the exact same time, I was fortunate to have a dinner set up with a guy by the name of Todd Wagner. Todd is Mark Cuban's business partner. Together, they started broadcast.com and eventually sold it for uh, multiple billions and making uh, Todd and Mark both billionaires. So I, um, I, I flew down to where, uh, where Todd, one of Todd's homes, and uh, met with him at a, a hotel. And we had about an hour conversation before the official dinner started. And it just blew my mind. I peppered him with questions and follow-up questions. And he was so gracious and humble and, and kind to, to humor me and, 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 sh- and share you know, the, the ups and downs of creating broadcast.com until eventually sitting across from the founders at Yahoo and and you're, you're either going to buy us or you're going to have to compete with us, you know, and they walked away with billions. And what I found was that I was just fascinated by learning directly from the operators, the people who were making it happen. I loved it. I, w- I, I was almost addicted to that conversation and I, I so badly wanted to have more. And so instead of, um, I stopped looking at applying to, to get a, a further a degree and said, I want to create my own form of a leadership PhD and I want to choose each and every professor. And those professors are the people I'm going to have conversations with. And not only do I, am I going to learn for myself, but I'd love to have others learn along with me. So I'm going to publish each of those conversations in the form of a podcast. So I'm going to utilize some of the skill of, of, of interviewing that I developed through years in corporate America where I was hiring for my team and also helping others hire for their teams. So I, I'd done hundreds of interviews up to that point, use that with my own curiosity and reach out to leaders in all different industries. And, and, and then we'll see how it goes. And fortunately it, it, it really um, seemed to um, make a difference, a positive difference in the lives of the listeners. Um, this is starting now going on five years ago. And now here we are 335 plus episodes. And it's my favorite thing to do is to have these curiosity conversations with people who are much wiser than me, have more knowledge, smarter, and they leave an imprint on my life. And, and now, um, fortunately, a, a lot of other people's lives who are listening to the show. So it's, it is a true blessing and joy that I, um, I get to do something that I love um, on a daily basis. You've hit on something there that is precisely true for me as well in that having conversations with these people has changed a lot of my opinions about teams and team dynamics and leadership and culture. And has then helped also fuel ideas for books and blogs and, and keynote talks. And, and it's kind of become this little ecosystem. But what I love about the same as you is that you're constantly being challenged with, with new ideas from these people that are at the coalface. And I'm sure you get this a lot as well. I get contacted a lot about, should I start a podcast? And I couldn't uh, emphasize this more that I think everyone should try it. Cause like, you know, what was episode one like for you? How did you, how did you feel about it? Go, go listen to it. It's, 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 uh, I'll, I'll try to be easy on myself. It's, it's not that good. 
and was probably on a a $20 like uh you know, Best Buy headset and you know, some, some simple. You know, it's funny, actually, I did invest in, in good, good equipment before I launched. And I, and I tell people to do that. I, I know that's counterintuitive. Everyone said, just start, just start. And I would say, don't you get one shot as a first impression, make like, you're not going to be the best interviewer or the best storyteller initially because you need reps, but don't mess it up by having poor quality. Um, you get one shot with some people and, and at a minimum, at least they can say, well, at least it sounds okay. At least it sounds good. So that is one point that I think is different in the advice I give that I, I see online is that everyone else says, just start, just start. I would not just start. I would properly plan. I would invest because for me, that investment ensured that I wouldn't quit. Mm-hmm. I am not going right. to stop because I've already, I, I am, I am deep into this. Now I wouldn't quit anyway. That's not in my nature, but that, that was another marker that said, no, no, I'm invested. Like I'm putting my money where my mouth is. So when I meet with others and, and I'm uh, where we have the same thing probably happening where it happens on a regular basis where people want coaching or help, or they ask for advice on starting. And I push them to invest in themselves when it comes to equipment and sound quality, because there are too many great sounding podcasts out there. If yours doesn't sound good, you don't have a shot. So I, I would tell people, and I, I didn't mean to butt in, but I think this is something I feel strongly about, that if you're going to do it, then do it. Something I talk about with my wife all the time, like if we're going to decide to do something, so let's say we're planning a vacation, we're either going to go on a vacation, like I mean a vacation, a good one, or we're not going to do it. And I, I take that approach to everything, either go do the thing or don't do it at all. Um, don't just go like 40% or 60%, either go 100 or zero. And I, I'm a firm believer in that with, with everything that you're going to do. There's really no excuses. Do your research. There's a million different articles about the, the type of microphone that you can use and how to use it and you know, plug it in. It's USB. I think the, the barriers to entry are so low. That, oh, yeah. uh, that, that everyone should try it. And like you said, you don't need to be the best interviewer. Uh, you're not going to nail it. My first ever podcast was with Adam Grant and Joe Dumas. And so I, I, wasn't, I wasn't hitting my straps uh, with, with those two. But, um, but yeah, that's you, a massive get, man, for your first. How did you get those as your first guest? Well, I, I just sent Adam a, a thank you because I was reading originals as I was writing my book. And... I interviewed Joe for the book and then, uh, you know, Adam grew up in Detroit, obviously watching the Pistons and we just started talking. And then as I developed this concept for my show where most of my episodes have two guests. And so I, I went to people that I wanted to pair up and that was an obvious one, you know, just the humility angle for them was too good to ignore. And so, uh, just show them both an email and, and we're away to the races. What, what, uh, I'm curious, why do you like having uh, two, two guests on together? The multiplier effect. Mm. So I, the, the third guest and the ability to create more of a, more of a conference panel type atmosphere ah. for me allows us to all bounce ideas off each other. And so it becomes less this Q and a back and forth. And for me to just to kind of go into my thought process behind that was, when I did my analysis of podcasting, I looked at you. I looked at Tim Ferriss. I looked at you know Oprah Winfrey. I looked at all these different people that were going to be so much better at just that Q&A. And I didn't think I could compete there. So where I could compete 
was bringing people together. And then also as me as the host and me as a, not a leadership expert, but someone that's curious about leadership, I could also join the conversation. So now Mm. as a listener, I'm getting three people's perspectives rather than just your straight Q&A. Tell me about your latest book. Tell me about your latest movie. You know, what was it like to work with Robert De Niro? Um, There's going to be a lot better people to do that kind of thing than me. Uh, So I, yeah, I, and, and that was the, the first one that I wanted was Adam and Joe. So once they were both committed, then I was able to snowball that and say to other people. I haven't had a chance to listen yet. How, how, how was it? How were they with each other? Oh, it was, it was great. Uh, because <laughs> That'd be a cool one. Yeah, I, 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 I think it's a cool idea, actually. I think now, you know, 30-something, I've recorded about 50 episodes, but 30 are up. I, I think that that uh, matchmaking process is what I'm really big on now. So it takes me to really study what they're talking about, what they're interested in, uh, to do that matchmaking. So you can't pull together just any random couple. Uh, so I spent a lot of time just watching people on Twitter and LinkedIn and what are they vibing on at the moment and then try and find someone that maybe they don't know. So it's a little bit of networking as well. Like Adam didn't know Joe, which blew my mind. But uh, yeah, and you can pull people together like that. Again, like a conference panel. Yeah, I, I love that idea, man. I think that's that's great. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I don't want to like take over <laughs> asking you questions. I, I'm, I was curious. <laughs> No, no problem. Hey, we can talk about this all day. Something that keeps coming up for me is this movement of executives that, you know, it's moved from sleeping at the office and not getting any sleep and not exercising to how do leaders take care of themselves. So I'd love some advice. Like if I'm one of those leaders and maybe I'm trying to get out and I'm trying to get home at six to put my kids to bed or get out for a run every day, how can I start? Uh, well, first, it's, I think, understanding why is that important to you? So again, this gets back to being reflective and having understanding of why you value what you value. Um, so, and, and one of the ways to start, um, maybe maybe I'm too simplistic in this, but for example, like I am a, I am a type of person who needs to start his day uh, working out. So I wake, but, but I don't have very many options during the day to do that. So, um, the only real time is early morning as a husband and, and, and a dad, uh, we have some sort of sporting events with our kids most nights and, and all weekends. So I have to get up early and do that. I mean, there it's really say, do I value taking care of my body, both physically and mentally, I do. That is a top, top priority for me because if I don't do that, then nothing else happens. I'm not there for my family. So because of that and that, and because of that priority list, then I will sacrifice in other areas. Perhaps I need to go to bed earlier because I'm going to wake up earlier. And then I decide, well, that's what I'm going to do. And it's certainly hard, but then it becomes a habit and a routine and a ritual because I'm willing to just keep doing it. And now I've been doing it for years. So I think part of it is getting clear on what's important, why it's important, and then understanding that it's probably not going to be easy initially, but set up the environment for you to be successful, um, right? Which would be in this case, the example I'm using is, is, is get the bed at a decent hour. 
um, so that you can get enough sleep to then wake up early before your family wakes up and get what you need to get done so that you can be with them, you know, for the breakfast or whatever it is you want to do. So I, I think, I think for, for me, it's it just, just making sure you're getting clear on what's important and prioritizing that properly. Yeah, I think there's big leaps to be made in that whole ecosystem around leaders performing better because they're taking better care of themselves, particularly in an environment where we've moved away from, you know, leaders kind of sitting in their office, just checking off timesheets and and monitoring everyone to that, you know, raw emotional um, well-being. They're taking care of their, their whole team. And so... Yeah, I'm interested to see how this continues. But uh, like you said, you know, sleep is a huge performance indicator in in sports. It, and it's something that is directly translatable to the workplace. You're going to make better decisions. You're going to be all these different things. Uh, and, and diet would be another one that I think is relatively easy. You control what goes in your mouth. And mm-hmm. so, you know, there's huge leaps to be made for executives. Even if you can't get out for a run, it's still better to eat well rather than also not getting out for a run and also eating McDonald's. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would encourage anyone that's kind of struggling with that to, like you said, try to find an environment where you can set yourself up for success and then also let others know, I need this. I need to get out for a run. I need to meditate. Um, and start to put those stakes in the ground and, and protect some time. Yeah, I, as, as mentioned, a lot of the work when it comes to leadership that I talk about, whether it's in keynotes or, or some of the, the advising I do with leaders and CEOs of businesses, is we talk so much and focus so much on pausing and looking inward um, because if you don't get that right, it can have a, a ripple effect on all of the other people in your life, including the people who are most important to you, your spouse, your kids, your family, and then certainly if you're running the show at a business, the other people that that you're 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 in charge of taking care of of leading. And um, so, I am a, a, a massive proponent on leading yourself first, um, of taking care of yourself first. Um, and then that leads to you being better at everything else. Um, so it's not a selfish thing. In fact, it's the opposite of being selfish. It's, it's having a deep understanding of what needs to happen in order for you to excel, to be there for all those other people that you're responsible for leading. Ryan, you're an inquisitive dude. Outside of all of what we've talked about today, what is interesting you at the moment? Are you still ruminating on a Netflix documentary that you watched? Do you deep in a Wikipedia hole? Like what, what have you uh, found recently that's, that's interested you that maybe you didn't know anything about beforehand? Oh, that is a tough one. Um, I, I, you know, and maybe this isn't as, as exciting, but I've really started to try to uh, dig in on um, writing and writing stories um, mainly because it's whether I'm writing, f- just finished up writing a book and that'll be published later by McGraw Hill. Um, but just, just, I'm fascinated by seeing the process in which people write and the routines that they have to get into or don't have to get into and, and just the, the, the setting up proper environments for you to be a, um, a more thoughtful person and, uh, to be reflective and to get it down on the page. I've, I found that writing, 
has been the best form to get clarity of thought, to understand what I believe. And so I think everybody could benefit from writing, uh, whether it's a daily journal that you will never publish or writing a book or writing something that uh, to get your beliefs out on the page. I, I do think we all should, should work on uh, understanding at a deeper level what we believe, what we think, why we think what we think, um, and then constantly question ourselves um, so that we're always evolving and iterating and improving. So while uh, I would imagine others might have more interesting answers, that's just something that is, is the first thing that came to mind when you said, what are you really ruminating on? What are you thinking about? I mean, that's what I'm thinking about constantly right now. And so as you were writing your book, what? how did you find that process? Like what felt positive to you in terms of, you know, your habits and, and when you would write and, and that kind of thing. Well, well think about any time you have to prepare for a big moment where you're going to share what you think. So whether you're guest lecturing at a university, you're having a one-on-one conversation with someone that you're mentoring, you're giving a keynote speech in front of 5,000 people, whatever it may be. Leading up to that moment, I would imagine the type of people who are listening to your show, they have a lot of pride in themselves and in, their, and, and, and in adding value to the lives of other people, right? There's ambitious learners that are listening right now. And so for, for all of you that, that have, ha, have had those types of experiences, the, the moments leading up to, the, to that big event, to those inflection points of your life where you're trying to teach and help serve other people, that's when you really learn. The preparation process is when so much learning takes place because if you're going to get up and stand in, in front of a group and say, this is what I believe and here's why, you have to get very clear on why you think what you think. And one of the ways to do that is to sit down and write it out. And so that's why if you're trying to get very clear, that's the one of the ways to do it. And for me, writing a book is one of the best ways ever. If you, if you set a 500, 500 words a day goal, which I did in order to get to 75,000 words and you're doing that for upwards of a year, um, that is uh, a very (laughs) intentional process to understand what you believe and to get clear on what you think. I sometimes surprise myself. I was like, oh, okay, that's what I think now that I've taken the time because I'm pushing myself to hit these goals. That's what I think about this particular topic. Mm, okay. I didn't really get it fully fleshed out prior to this process of writing a book. And now I do. And so that's why I think you, you speak to people who have written multiple books and, and I'm always impressed at their, their level of clarity of their beliefs, of their, 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 their the, the depth that they can speak at with that particular topic, because they've done the hard work of really getting introspective and doing research and, and writing. And so everybody, there's no reason that everybody can't do that. You don't have to publish a book. You don't have to publish even a word, but I think you could still do the work of, of, of the writing, the thinking, the reflection in order to get to that level. Definitely. Yeah. Completely changed my life really when I started writing and and originally it was just blogging about sports. That's what I was interested in. But the idea of putting that down on paper and, and trying to create clarity that someone else could read that was transformational for me and I am sure that it will be for a lot of people as well. Even if, like you said, it's just your own thoughts and trying to create some sort of clarity for maybe a cloudy idea or a difficult time. And and look, at the end of the day, 
you know, this is what I've been saying to people. There are so many gaps in human history where we weren't able to write things down and we don't know what happened to certain people and everyone's interested in their family histories. Like there's also that element of writing things down creates those legacy items for future generations as well. And so it's not just for for you, there's potentially also a historic element to it as well. And I've been encouraging people to think about it like that a little bit more. I love it, man. Love it. What what was like, why did you initially set out to write the book? Talking of clarity, it was a moment of clarity and and just looking at, you know, I'd been in the workforce for 10 years. I'd worked in Australia for a couple of years, moved to Toronto and, you know, coaching Canada's national Aussie rules team. And (laughs) it was just this looking at recruiting and leadership and culture trying to build it on Saturday and Sunday with my team and then watching how big companies were doing it Monday through Friday. And, and they just came together and I just had this framework in my head and, and then I just went for it. And mm. I wish there was kind of a, a, a more methodical story, but it was kind of an epiphany moment. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that I've actually been blogging about this. There's the stupid blogs that I thought I was writing back in 2012 these are actually now relevant again to this topic that I want to talk about. So hmm. yeah, I, I, um, that's why I started and then I started to get competitive with it and competitive with myself and looking at what other people were doing and, and, and trying to make sure that it wasn't just, you know, a flub when it did come out. So, um, yeah, it's uh, oh, love it, man. completely love transformational it. and, and just something that felt really natural for me. Yeah. That's good stuff. All right. Where can people follow along with you and find your show and all of the things that you're doing? Uh, Learningleader.com is where the home base for everything for what I do. And you can also text if you're on your phone right now, text learners to 44222. And that's a way to get directly in touch with me, um, texting learners to 44222. But those are the main ways. I like to engage with... um, with people who listen, so don't hesitate to uh, to reach out. You can get a hold of me in either of those those places on learningleader.com or texting learners to four four two two two. Mate, I could talk to you for hours. So thanks for your time today. Um, this is going to be of huge value to so many people. So yeah, thank you. All right, thanks, Cody.